This is Jeremy Park, CEO of City Current, personally inviting you to Growth Current. Growth Current is our e-learning and online personal development platform with City Current. It's an opportunity to attend virtual events with global thought leaders, national guest speakers, and experts who can help you grow personally and professionally. It gives you access to success secrets, lessons learned, learning modules, and so much more. Subscriptions are only $8 a month, and you can do bulk subscriptions for your team. Check out growthcurrent.co to learn more. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. On this episode, we're diving into someone who's doing so much good fighting food insecurity, especially across Middle Tennessee and beyond. We're joined by Chris Whitney. He's the founder and director of One Generation Away. And Chris, how are you doing, buddy? Man, I'm doing well, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Doing very well. So I love everything you're doing. You're doing so much good. We'll talk all about that on the professional side. But Let's start by getting to know you personally. Give us a little bit about just where you grew up and your childhood. Yeah, so I grew up in Normandy, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, close to North St. Louis, which is kind of what you would call the hood, the rough neighborhood of where and in St. Louis. And um, people will relate to location when I we I, we lived right next door to Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which were the riots back in the day. And uh, my wife and I's first date was in Ferguson. And uh, so I lived in St. Louis my whole life until I moved to Franklin, Tennessee, 17 years ago. So um, I spent 40 years, a little over 40 years, 42 years in, in St. Louis in, in that area. So I grew up in a uh, what you would call a middle class home, probably a lower middle class community. My schools that I went to, uh, especially junior high and high school back in the day, were predominantly African-American. Uh, so I, I have I have a. a you know, a lot of opinions about, you know, racial issues because I grew up in that midst. And so when people, you know, when Ferguson happened, so many people were surprised. And I was like, ah, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when and, and when happened with the Michael Brown situation. So uh, my, my father was an alcoholic. Um, so I grew up in, in kind of a dysfunctional, what we call a dysfunctional home in a sense, you know. And uh, so uh, it was it was definitely a, a different kind of upbringing uh, from most people. I had three younger brothers. And, uh, so when I was about 13, I kind of became the man of the house and, uh, change changes how your childhood is lived and, and how you live out. You know, our grandparents on my mom's side were basically supported us tremendously during those times. And, uh, my dad died at 52 of throat cancer. And as you know, I had throat cancer at the, at the same age, which is really, and so did my brother. So it's kind of a real genetic weird thing. And, uh, yeah, so that was that's that was kind of my upbringing and my raising was basically, um, you know, I can remember living. It, it's funny, you know, you look back and I can remember where we lived and across the street there were some woods and then um, where I went to grade school was what I called like a really nice neighborhood, you know, and the homes were probably now I look back on it were probably about eighteen hundred square feet, and I thought, man, I could never imagine living in a house like that one day, you know, because <laughs> man, we lived in a two bedroom thousand square foot house ranch, you know, with four boys and my parents, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's just funny when you look back on life and think, man, I, I was remember being a kid dreaming, man, I wonder if I could ever live in a house like that. And, uh, um, so, uh, you know, I went through, I went through, uh, school. I, I, um, uh, I got my high school diploma and, uh, never went to, never had another hour of education after that. So it's always been one of those things in life where you look at and go, uh, I used to be really ashamed about that, and really embarrassed about it, you know, because uh, college is 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 such a critical thing in people's lives. But man, it was just I couldn't wait to get out of the house. So as soon as I graduated high school, I left home and uh, I wanted to get out of the dysfunction. What was it like, though, for you as the as the oldest in terms of your relationship with your dad? Was that and obviously with him and, and fighting alcoholism? Were there fights? Was it easy? Was it okay? What was that like? No, we we had a lot of fights. I mean, I I had left home a couple times, and just because I I you know 
I had a really, really, really bad temper. I mean, like a violent t- I had one time had my brother on the floor choking him. If they wouldn't have pulled me off, I probably wouldn't have stopped kind of thing. So I, um, obviously I was exposed to alcohol at an extremely young age. And, um, my dad used to have a kegger in the basement, you know, and so they didn't want to walk downstairs. So we would walk down as kids and, and pour everybody's beer. Well, you know what happens when that happens, you know, you're seven, eight years old and you're experiment, you know, you're beyond experimenting now you've already got the taste for alcohol. And so I was, I was just a young, you know, 18 years old partying like crazy, man. We always had parties and drinking and, and I, d- I did not have a good relationship with my dad. So I couldn't wait to get away from him and get out of that situation. And, uh, you know, most people would think college would have been an option. I was a smart student. I was in advanced AP classes, who's who among American high school students and all those things. But man, I have any direction, you know what I mean? I just had no, the only direction I knew is I just wanted out. However, that was, I wanted out, but yet I didn't have the courage to leave the city I was in which is really weird as I look back on that. You know what I mean? I just didn't want to leave St. All my friends were there. So my friends were like my family. And um, so, uh, and God bless my mom. She went through so much, man, raising four boys with no alimony, no real support. My dad just didn't work. You know, he was just, he just drank himself into oblivion and he got remarried. And so uh, I really didn't have any contact with my dad until after I got married. And, uh, um, shortly after I got married, my wife and I became Christians. Um, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but I didn't go to church. I was CNE at best Christmas and Easter. If that, my wife was devout Catholic raised in Mississippi. So she moves from Mississippi to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And we met through a construction company, really interesting story. She had never driven on an interstate highway until she was 20 years old which is really wild. I'm like, how does that happen? You know, I mean, she's, she's from Greenville, Mississippi, you know, and in the Delta. And I'm like, wow, that's weird. And uh, we joke about the first time I called her was like nine o'clock one night and, and her, she had gotten her brother a job. So she was living with her brother and sister-in-law. He was a, a carpenter. So she got him a union carpenter job paying twice as much or more than what he's making in Mississippi, you know? And I remember calling and they said she was in bed at nine o'clock and I went, I'm just getting ready to go out, man. I'm like, what the heck's up? With you? I'm like, what? How weird is that? You know? And, and uh, but anyway, we ended up talking and, uh, and we started dating and uh, we were engaged in six months and married six months later. And that's a little over 34 years ago now that we've been married and it's been quite a journey. It's been, it's been quite a journey for, for us as a couple. And um, I was in the construction business. I, I actually got out of high school and sold women's shoes at a place called Connie Shoes. It was a wool shoe company, brown shoe company. So some of our listeners may remember them. They were a national based out of St. Louis. And that's what I did. And I was really good, became an assistant manager. And Jeremy, what's so funny is I remember being like 19 years old and they asked me about maybe starting a store in Tennessee. And and I thought, I am not leaving St. Louis. I mean, this is where all my friends are, you know? I mean, it wasn't. And uh, so I didn't. And um, then I got in the construction business and that's... uh, that's where a guy, uh, I worked with a guy that uh, were what people would call born again believers. I hate that terminology. I just, I don't know. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. But uh, um, so a guy would just, he would just, he just wore me out. So when I was 21, I prayed with him one time on a job site just so he would shut up and leave me alone, literally. And uh, and they just kept living my life, man, partying. But he left me alone because I, I knew the vernacular. I was around enough people. I knew the language. So I just faked my way through it, built churches and all this crazy stuff. And uh, my wife and I got married, bought our first house. And um, so we she worked for a construction company as a secretary and I was a drywall finisher. And uh, I was good at it. And we made a, a, a decent income. And uh, but I was always restless, knew there had to be more. And yeah. uh so we became Christians. And then that's when um, I, I, I uh, went after that. I, I really felt convicted to, I needed to make, try to make things right with my dad. And I actually did live with him for a while when I was 19, 20, I just needed someplace to stay. So I just kind of stayed there and just avoided him. You know what I mean? Did my job, went to work, just didn't talk to him or my stepmom. And, um, but when I became a Christian, um, this is a cool story. And, um, I was actually with my dad one night and I had to call an ambulance and he had cancer really bad at that time. And it was just a matter of time. And 
he actually died in the ambulance and I really prayed that he wouldn't die. And we got, they were able to bring him back. And um, I really felt like I wasn't going to be the one that was going to really, what we call, you know, pray with him to, to receive Christ to really. Um, but I thought my pastor would. So my brother and I took my pastor down to a uh, hospice center and two days before he died, he got to pray with him. But before that, I went to a hospital one day and um, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to go talk to my dad and I'm, I want to I want to make things right to the best of my ability. So I walked into a room. My stepmom wasn't. It was a perfect situation. I walked in and I said, Dad, I said. Um, I said, uh, I became a Christian and uh, I want you to know I forgive you. And I said, I want you to forgive me as a son because I wasn't the son I should have been. And, um, and I know a lot of people could listen to this and go, well, you were just a kid. Well, yeah, but I was a kid, but I was pretty much a butthead as a kid too. You know what I'm saying? I had my issues. And, and I could, and people could say it's deservedly so, and, and they're probably right, but man, I became an adult. And sometimes you got to grow up and own that you're just not a good human, you know? And I wasn't, man, I had bad temper and, and I was drinking too much. And, and so it was, it, it was really cool that I got to clear myself of the guilt of thinking that I couldn't forgive my dad. My dad had a disease, a really bad disease. And we had some good times together, you know? And, um, but, uh, Throughout my life, we had a we had a we had a we had a strained relationship, man. I mean, you know, I played a lot of sports, and he coached me a lot, and I'd I'd win most valuable player, except the only no vote was my father, which was just you know really weird, you know. And if I got straight A's, it was never good enough. Why weren't they straight A pluses? You know, you always felt like there was more, which you realize as you get older that really warps who you are and it and in your sense of identity. So I struggled with identity issues probably you know most of my adult life. And, um, and, you know, recently I've been able to, you know, last several years, I've been able to get over that where I can tell you now that I only have a high school diploma and, and you know, those things. And, and so it, that, that was a, that was a big turning point in our marriage. And then after we got married, we had our first child, um, we got married in 88 and she was born in 90. And, um, then we got pregnant again in 90, um, in, in 92, and uh, through a series of events, we found out that our uh, the child we were carrying had spina bifida and is one of the worst cases they'd ever seen. So we um, and which we don't have the time to go through all that story. It's a whole nother story that could take up a whole podcast, a, a neat, a, an amazing story. But um, anyway, she she was born and, and they told us she would never walk and be paralyzed for life and have no control about her bladder functions. And I was in the construction business and. We probably, I probably made $16,000 that year because it was just a really bad year. You know, construction seasonal and we had really bad weather and it was just a really tough time uh, economically. And, um, and our insurance premium was over half our income, but I had to pay my insurance because I got a child. That's, you know what I mean? So Sarah was born and, and um, she was moving her legs and, and she's now 30 years old and walks and it's, it's an amazing miraculous story, which we can't go into all the details, but just to give you a little background. So we, we ended up going bankrupt and lost everything we own. We lost the first home we bought. And for about six months, Elaine was in a food line and um, it was a real humbling experience. And then I changed careers and got in the insurance business and became extremely successful in the insurance business. And we got really involved in our church and became youth leaders and, uh, um, I felt like I could relate to teenagers because of the weirdness of my life. You know what I mean? That I could maybe give something back, walk them through, you know, the struggles of being a kid and parents and, and, uh, and we ended up leading mission trips overseas. And man, I didn't see the ocean until I was 31 years old for the first time, the Gulf of Mexico. I went to Orange Beach, I went to Gulf Shores, Alabama with some friends. And it was the first time I ever saw the ocean. I want to go back. Give me one good memory with you and your, your family. So your father, your mother, give me, give me one good memory that stands out. Really cool. We went to, we got to go on a big trip, biggest trip we ever did. We took three weeks and with a pop top camper and went to Colorado Springs, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and went up and saw some friends they had in Montana and got to go to Calgary and see the Tetons. And that was probably one of the coolest things. One of the coolest memories that I had as a family was doing that. It was really amazing. I mean, seeing the Tetons is, that's, 
breathtaking in and of itself, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So now, so you've kind of carried the story full circle in terms of where you are a little bit with starting one generation away, but go ahead and talk about starting one generation away because that yeah. carries forward with you talking about just, you know, understanding what it's like to stand in a line for food and dignity around um, just where you are in that moment, but being able to offer support. Talk about one generation away. Yeah. So we, we came, we moved to Franklin to start a church was our, our, uh, we didn't know a soul. We had no financial support and we came here and started a church. So people are on this podcast going, this guy really is not that bright. It really sounds, yeah, he's really not that bright. And, uh, so that's what we did. And I had an insurance business. So I would travel back and forth to St. Louis to keep, um, you know, keep funding our, our, our starting our church. And, um, and then I was just praying one day and God dropped this phrase in my heart one generation away. So I reserved a domain name, which is funny because I remember the days of pagers and trying to find a pay phone. And, you know what I mean, and I, I had one of the first bag phones and I remember telling Elaine, don't ever use this phone unless your life depends on it. It's $5 a minute. You know, I mean, I did. I remember the first bag phone I had. It was crazy. And uh, I was in the insurance business. And, and uh, um, so we, we, uh, we, we left a church that all of our kids were born in. It was a 4,000 member church. We were youth leaders. We led mission trips overseas with teenagers. I mean, we, we did it all there. And so we came here to a land we know not of. So he drops that phrase in my heart. And I remember back when my oldest daughter was watching a special on Dr. King when she's about nine and she's crying and looks up to me and says, dad, why are they spraying the brown people? And I felt like God was saying that we're a generation away from eliminating racism, which I know is a crazy thing to say in this world, but for the millennial generation and beyond, they see color, but not as a barrier. And they, and they had, they, they embrace different color. And I feel like we really have some hope with a generation that will end this nonsense of because we look, have a different skin color that we're, that we're separated for some reason. And uh, I know it goes much deeper than that, but, but I believe that's where it starts. And so we, um, uh, and then, you know, we were so small of a church, you know, 20 people and you're getting 30,000 pounds of food, which we'll go into in a minute, dropped in a parking lot. So I needed some help. So I called some pastor friends and they sent some of their church members together. And I thought, man, you know, we're like a generation away from eliminating denominationalisms, not denominations. I'm not, but where we quit being separated by the name on our building, where we could literally come together and serve our communities like we should. And, uh, and then Miss Rena happened and Miss Rena was a sweet African-American woman, we would do commodities. Uh, one of the first things we did as a church, we helped with commodities. So there's government agencies around the country that gets food from the government and you can, they'll feed the elderly, you know? So that's what we would do. We'd walk out to their car. I was bagging groceries, walking out to their cars and, and I figured I'm in a public parking lot. So I would just always ask them, hey, is there something I can pray with you about? Um, because I know there's a bigger need. You know what I mean? There's always a bigger issue in someone's life. And I feel like that's such a... Um, it's just such an easy question to ask. It's not, I'm not pushing any agenda. I'm just want to help and, and be a part of a solution. If there's a need that we can meet and uh, not knowing that God was building a model. So Miss Rena would sign in volunteers. So one day she's in my, in our food line and she said, Pastor Chris, thank you so much. And I go, Miss Rena, you're welcome. She goes, no, really? Thank you. I go, Miss Rena, you know, this is just what we do. And she goes, you just don't understand. She goes, now I can buy my medicine. And I'm like, I'm in the seventh to 10th wealthiest county in the United States of America, standing with a woman that you would never know. She always dressed to the nines, just beautiful, a widow. And she's making a decision between buying food and medicine in the United States. And I'm like, what? I mean, you probably could have touched me and I would have fell over. Like I was just so in shock. And, uh, and I'm thinking, man, if that's happening here in such a wealthy county, what's going on where I grew up in Normandy and Ferguson and Greenville, Mississippi, where my wife's from? I mean, you know, and I'm like, my God, man, we got to, this is a big deal. Food's a big deal, you know? I mean, let alone we were in a food line for a period of time, but, you know, and, and, and so we just, we really, I mean, Jeremy, the thing for us was, it's hard to ask for something. It's hard to admit, Hey, I have a need. I can't meet it right now. And, and I don't feel like we make that easy in our society to make that, you know, for people to ask, yeah. you know what I mean? 
And um, so our big thing is how do we bring dignity and honor to a segment of our society that has lost it? And one of our board members said it this way. Um, I wish I could talk like this. I just, I don't know. It just never comes out that way. But she just said, it's like we ask people to prove they're sufficiently deficient to need help. How, how degrading is that? And it's true if you think about it. You know, prove to me, you know, you need to prove to me you're, you're, you're poor enough to where I can think about helping you. It's like, wow. Well, as you know. a society, we're so worried about fraud that we lose sight of, just like you're saying, the dignity of, hey, look, if they're willing to show up in a food line and wait their turn, obviously they're dealing with a lot. And yeah. to, to try to force them to unpack that, you know, versus just saying, hey, look, you're here. We love you. We appreciate you. Let's, let's work together. Two polar opposites in terms of what it portrays non-verbally in terms of, you know, just the actions of it. So it's, it is, it's a big difference. And sadly, we live in a world where everything is around, you know, protecting against fraud. But the reality is you put people through the ringer who need, need real help. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not, and, and I want to make sure I'm clear about this. I, I understand that. I mean, I believe there are some things where you have to vet. This is food, man. I'm, 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 instead of people throwing away food, we're rescuing it. I'm not, I mean, I'm paying labor and gas to get the food, but it's like, it's just food. And if we're really going to want, if we really, really, really want to help people get out of a cycle, you have to give them dignity and honor first. Without that, you have nothing. Because believe me, I lived that, man. I lived, hey, I'm in the insurance business. I don't have a college degree. I don't have a, I mean, I'm not even supposed to have this job. You know what I mean? I mean, I literally flunked not, I mean, I, I passed the insurance test first time, but they make you do a personality thing. I flunked it three times, you know, because it's like a BS thing, man. I'm sorry, but that, you know, it's like, you're supposed to embellish all the stuff. And I'm like, I'm just not an embellisher, man. It's just, you kind of, what you see is what you get with me kind of thing, you know? So, but this guy goes, I'm going to take a flyer on you. And it was a good decision on his part. You know, <laughs> I was a good producer and, and made million dollar round table and all these things. And, um, but that, that helped with my identity somewhat, but there was still always in the back of my mind. Like, dude, let me tell you a funny story. So when I first got in the business, we had a four door car. It was like a 79, you know, you know, remember how cars were so long back then, you know, it was like, it looked like a hearse, you know, it was so big, but it had no air conditioning. So, you know, we, we had, we had 470 air, four windows down, 70 miles an hour, you know, that whole thing. And so I would go to, I would go to clients' houses and I would park like, five houses away so they wouldn't see my car and make sure I had my jacket on the whole time. So you see how sweaty my back was. I mean, literally that's what it was like when I started in the insurance business. And because I was so concerned once again, by how people would judge me by a car I drive or, you know what I mean? And, and, and I've seen this on both sides of the fence of what we do, you know, like, Oh, they drive a jalopy. So they got to be poor where there's people that drive jalopies that are millionaires or they're driving this real nice car so they got to be rich, which, you know, I found everybody in between, you know. How do you tell your kids and others? Because I think the imposter syndrome, identity crisis, that's a very real thing that so many people struggle with. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot to unpack in terms of, you know, their parents and childhood and, you know, bullying and all these things that people deal with and trying to keep up with the Joneses and like just life in general. And I think social media yep. plays heavily into that because you yep. always look at what others have and you don't even know if they really have it in terms of what pictures they're sharing. But the reality is you feel, you feel that you're not worthy. You feel that you're not up to that standard. And so you're yep. always kind of caught in this identity crisis. How do you try to help people kind of navigate through that based on what you've dealt with personally? Like what, what's your advice? Well, I tell people that we deal with that this is a season. For most of us, this is a season in life. And, and I'm, I'm a real simple guy, so I like using pictures and analogies of things. And it's like, you know, right now it's a beautiful season, right? I mean, before summer, it's cool. It's nice. You know what I mean? But we all know, I, like I had a call right before you, like, yeah, I know in two months it's going to be really stinking ignorant hot, you know, obnoxious hot. But then again, it's going to get cold. So it's like, this is a season and we're just here to help you get through this season of life to the next season. Now for the elderly, 
they're going to be like this forever. But the thing for them is, guess what? I want you to know we're going to be here as long as you need us to be here, whatever that season looks like. And I think without being, uh, and, and I've learned over the years, and I don't always get this right, but my wife prayed for me that I would be comfortable in my own skin. And I think, you know, like I told you when we first met, you know, that I love talking to you. I feel like we have some common. I don't know why, but I just, I don't know. You're just a great guy to talk to. And I, and I like a lot of people uh, because I love the, the uniqueness of our stories and our lives. But I know this, man, I, I've, I've hung out with some of the, what people would call the wealthiest, have it all together people. And I've been with some of the poorest people that you can ever imagine. But I realized one thing, we're all people. And really, we all have the same dreams, the same desires, and, and, and our education's different. All of our things differ. And I've realized that I could sit in a room with somebody that's got a, an MBA or an advanced degree or mas three master's degrees, and I can talk to them and we can get along. Or I can sit with somebody that doesn't even have a GED yet, and I can talk to them and get along too. And uh, so I try to approach it simply that we're all people. I've been on both sides. I've, I've, I've had tremendous need. I've had tremendous abundance. And, um, you know, whether I abase or I abound, I'm cool either way. I want to be the same either way. And that's what I try to give to people. You know, my identity is who I am in Christ. And I, I'm not trying to be overly religious by that, but it really helps me to balance out that I don't need to be something I'm not. And, I've really, I've come to a place in my life where stuff is literally just stuff. And it's becoming a grandparent that made me think that, you know, when I, my kids were little, oh my God, don't touch that. Don't break that. Don't do this. You know, now my grandkids, I'm like, man, uh, you break the table, I'll get another one. <laughs> you know what? You draw on the wall, I'll paint it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? What was a big deal? Just isn't a big deal anymore. They're, they're, who they are as a human is far more than me losing my mind over, you marked on the table. Right. Your perspective changes. But I yeah, also man. think it goes back to a few things. One is you and I were talking before we hit record on this, but how, you know, when you start talking about your story and who you are and the things that you've experienced, in many cases, it seems like far-fetched or like a movie or it's, it's radical. And yet you realize the more radical it is, the more normal it is because everyone's dealing with all sorts of things. But the thing that, as you said, who you are is who you are. What you see is what you get. And so the fact that you're genuine and authentic and you are willing to open up and talk about your struggles, which everyone has struggles, the fact that you're not putting on the facade and parking yeah. five miles away now or five houses down now, you're just being who you are, opens you up to have a real conversation where you can peel back the layers of the onion and really get to know you. And I feel like that's the part where connections are really made is it's not on the surface. It's not with the clothes you're wearing and, you know, where you're eating dinner in terms of the fancy restaurants and things like that. It's can you peel back the layers and just be human with respect and dignity and have a conversation and get to know each other and genuinely want to get to know each other. And I think yeah. when you do that, all those barriers and those walls start to drop. But as you get deeper and deeper, just like you said, one, you find out you're way more together than you are separate. You're way more common. And, and at the same time, that's where you really find the heart and soul of what makes someone tick. And that's where the love kicks in. And so I feel like, you know, that to me is a big part then of dealing with the identity crisis is just being willing to open up and find others who are opening up and have that real connection. And like you said, for those who aren't going to go layers deep, move on because you're never going to get, you're, you're always going to have a shallow conversation. You're never going to really connect. No. And I agree, Jerry. And I think, you know, the thing with bullies and whatever you want to call it, however you want to describe it, you know, the bottom line is they're just using when you're vulnerable, they're using your insecurity as a weapon to beat you with because they don't want to admit their insecurity. Right. But to me, you just got to understand that if we can convince are young people more and more that the people that are bullying you have probably more insecurity than you do. They're just not, they're not mature enough, grown up enough, however simplistic we can make that to be on a level you're at, that you're willing to share your insecurity and your vulnerability. And, and really if we can get that and what, what concerns me is as adults, we can't do that. And so how do we expect our kids to learn it as adults? We've got to quit using 
someone else's weakness to justify, well, I'm not as bad as they are. That's the biggest bunch of crap we're feeding people anywhere. You know, like, well, I'm not, you're, you're worse than I am. You know what? We're all a hot mess, man. I mean, if we can't admit we're all broken and screwed up, it's okay, isn't it? I mean, we all are. We're all broken and screwed up. We all got issues. Your issues are different than mine. But we have to open up. <laughs> we, we, got, we all just got some issues, man. And uh, I know I, I, I drive some, I know there's probably people that think, man, I, I just don't ever want to talk to that guy again. And, and I'm sorry that I feel that way. I mean, I, I'm not intentional, but I know there are some people that I probably get on their nerves or whatever. And, and, but I'm not trying to intentionally be that way, but I'm learning more and more that, that the more I can be vulnerable, the better opportunity I'm really going to, like you said, to have a good conversation. And, and I've got stories. I mean, I could tell you a million stories, you know, of people that it's funny, you know, when um, before COVID, we were able to walk with people with a shopping cart full of food, you know, to their car and ask them one simple question, you know, like I told you, is there anything we can pray with you about today? And, and invariably, man, the people that are pushing the carts that are the volunteers, their lives are more changed than the person that they're pushing the cart for. Because they come back to me and go, you know, you know, they don't want their kids to get on drugs. They want their kids to go to college. They want their kids. And, and they go, I thought they were so different than I am, but they just want the same things I do. And it's like, yeah, that's the interesting thing about our world we live in. Pretty much everybody is believing for the same thing to happen. We're so siloed and isolated. You know, we, we've, um, thank God we're building sidewalks again. You know what I mean? So it's like, well, people will get out and walk or, you know, you got to go in and close your garage door as soon as you get in your house. And, you know, we just, we live in these bubble worlds because we don't want anybody to see what's on the inside. And I'm not saying you invite people into your deepest, darkest secrets, but man, just by sharing your story, it, it, it's you know, I, I remember one of, one of my favorite stories is a guy was pushing a cart for us. And this guy they goes up and he's got a brand new Escalade. Big guy. And, and, my, and, and, he, and the guy told me, so, you know, I'm instantly thinking in my mind, what is he doing here? So he goes, but he goes, I just blocked it and just asked him anyway, what kind of prayer? He goes, you know, he goes, uh, my boss was killed. And he bought me this car and he said, now I live in it. Wow. Perspective. You know, we make so many assumptions by what we see because we, like you said, we just don't just ask a couple questions, man. It's just, you know, it, there, there's always a little more to the story than what you're seeing. And so he, he said, man, he goes, that was, he goes, I was so convicted when I walked away from that conversation because I made this judgment and here's this guy. And he goes, the guy started to cry and he's just, as, I mean, it's like, wow, you know, what? in a parking lot, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, and I think these stories illustrate it for sure, but what puts a smile on your face when you look at how far one generation away has come, the impact you're able to, to make in these lives what brings a smile to your face at this point? Wow. That's a great question. I mean, obviously the people we get to serve and the people, two things, the people we serve, the kind, you know, we talked earlier about uh, being taken advantage of, I'd say less than 1% of the people that are in our lives are trying to take advantage of us. And I think that's probably true overall. I mean, we always hear the story on the news, you know, this family got eight EBT cards. Well, you know what? That's just not the norm. That's just good news to make you, to keep us all divided even more. Right. And uh, so the people we serve, their gratitude, their, I, I watched a lady the other day, man, just literally weeping because of the food that was in her car. And I'm thinking, my gosh, wow, how humbling to be able to be a solution to that. And I think the other side is being able to expose the people in the kind of worlds you and I live in now that we're quasi successful, whatever that means, you know what I mean? So, uh, but that we're not worried about how do we put groceries in our table or things like that, but that they get to experience this segment of our population and it changes how they see them. And it changes their opinion on the people we serve and how much they're motivated to come back and that they want to bring their children, which they can. We have a children friendly event those are the two things that make me the happiest. But, but I, I think I have to say this too, is that the people that watch this or listen to this, 
I mean, I'll be 60 years old in October and, and I wake up every day and can't believe I get to do what I get to do. And I had this crazy vision of like feeding a million people in one day around the country and a million people like being prayed with face to face by a local church or community or, and bringing businesses together to, to, to help make this happen. And here I am talking to you about it, man. And we're in multiple States. And so just for the person out there that's watching this and maybe feels like, well, I've, I didn't do good in school or I don't have enough, I mean, I got a high school diploma but I have a dream and I had a vision and it, and it's kind of coming to pass. And, and, and I'd love to tell you, man, I, I'm like, the, I'm not that smart. I'm not, I'm not stupid either, but I, I just had a passion and a dream and just sold out to, to see it happen. Those would be the three things, you know, it's just fun to have a dream and a vision and watch it kind of unfold. And like I tell people, I'm just kind of one of those people that I'm just dumb enough. I'm just too stupid to know when to quit. So I just don't quit easy. <laughs> hey, but the persistence, the purpose, the passion, all of that is what fuels the success and the impact that you're able to create. I asked this, uh, I had a chance to interview for the radio show, but you know, I'm curious, not just for you now, but for your family, how has this adventure changed? Because obviously, like you said, moving away from all of your support yeah. network, your family, your friends, everything to start a church, to be on that mission. And then all of a sudden to, to go in a whole new direction with one generation away. But when you look at, you know, our 4 million lives that you've been able to impact and, and this larger network that you've created, that's breaking down the walls of denomination and, you know, different faiths and different skin colors, everyone coming together. How has that changed you personally, but also your family? I mean, I think it, you know, we always raised our kids with never saying, you know, we never want our kids to say the word can't, they couldn't do something. Um, and I think it's opened our kids' eyes again to dream and, and to see, man, look what dad, look what mom and dad are doing, look what they've been able to do. And, and I think for me, the cool thing about having grandkids is I feel like um, I have more influence over my grandchildren than I even did my children, because I'm not the disciplinarian, you know what I mean? It's just this this bond of, of family, but of love that's so even, I don't want to say deeper than your children. It's just different. And I look at them and think, man, if I could teach them some of the things about loving people unconditionally, being vulnerable, being confident in who you are and being comfortable in your own skin, that that's probably what makes me happy more than anything, you know, and watching my kids thrive and me being able to look at them and say, this is what I saw in you. This is what I believed for you. And, you know, and now talking about, Hey, we've got it. We've got, you know, there, now it's like almost like a family business thing. You know, how do we, how can we be a part of this going on dad when you step away and, and that kind of things. So, I mean, that, that's a lot of fun, man. That's pretty cool. You know? And, uh, and thinking about how do we get, you know, Jeremy, the cool thing is we get to do, you know, hopefully I get to do this around the country where I can get other families and other people engaged where they do the same. They become a part of this and, and at that point, it, I mean, in, in some sense, it would, it would be naive to say this isn't like your dream. It, yes, it is. But it was a dream given by God. And, and my dream has been to make one gen nameless and faceless. And what I mean by that, it is it never it, it, it doesn't become about Chris and Elaine Whitney anymore. It just becomes, hey, that's Jeremy or that's Chris or that's Lauren or Sarah or Bob or Bill. You know what I mean? It's about whoever that person is at the moment. And, and that this thing literally becomes a movement. And it's not about, uh, you know, yeah, the corporations that sponsor us and the people, the, the companies that engage with us and, and the benefit it is for them, you know, the businesses that come to us. And it's like, it's, it's like the purpose, perfect team building thing. And it gives businesses access to a segment of our population that they don't come in contact with normally. And it exposes their people. And so now that company becomes a, a part of the fabric of our community, you know, which is the beauty of it. I mean, our whole community, not just their clientele, but they become the fabric of a whole community. And um, I think about that and go, how cool would that be if we could literally do this around the country that our business community, our churches, our, our Girl Scouts and boy and soccer teams were all just came together on a Saturday morning with nothing in mind other than to serve our neighbors in need. I know this seems Pollyanna, but it's not. I'm watching it happen. Yeah, so it's say. not Pollyanna. It, it can happen. Yeah, and that'll change who we are as a country. 
and actions. I mean, seeing you in action and seeing the, the actions play out, you want to be a part of that because it's not just you talking about it when you see it in action and you see the, the impact and you see the connectivity and the community coming together. You want to be a part of that. It's that gravitational, that heartstring yeah. pull. What advice do you give? Because as, as you said, you know, for your children stepping in and being a part of this, what advice do you give them? In the same token, when you look at other states, other cities who want to start building the infrastructure to have one generation away to, to be a part of that, what advice do you give them and your family to continue building this, to create this with you? So there's one word. I, I heard a guy speak in a, a thing, and uh, this will show you my my the other side of me that's pretty much like an arrogant jerk sometimes. And, uh, you know, and I'm learning, you know, people always ask me what to pray for. I say, pray, I keep the train on the tracks and pray. I don't get into pride. So I heard this guy speak and he said something, he goes, consistency trumps commitment. And when he first said, it, I went, that's a bunch of bull, man. Commitment's everything. Then I came home and thought about it and started stewing on it. And I went, dang, that's really good. So I kind of wrote this, I wrote a book called The Dirty Church. And so I wrote this thing out about one gen, you know, after you have to humble yourself and go, man, I'm so, sometimes I'm just so cocky and stupid. Like, I think I've got it all figured out, you know, and, uh, but I wrote this down and, and this is what I encourage communities and my kids is, so commitment is a big deal. I mean, you have to be committed, but commitment leads to consistency, which leads to credibility which leads to an open heart to receive, which leads to impact. So what you do with your life, if it's going to be impactful, it's not a microwave. It's not a drive-through. It is, it's based on consistency. You must consistently show up. Then you earn the credibility and the right. When you ask a question that you're going to get the vulnerability you're going to, you're going to be able to be vulnerable and they're going to be vulnerable with you because you keep showing up no matter what. If you have a low turnout, if something goes wrong, it doesn't mean this isn't the place to be. It means we're going to keep coming back until we're for sure this isn't the place we're supposed to be because everybody's skeptical. Just to be honest, you know, it's like, just, just say it. It's like, I, I don't, I wasn't, we're not trying to be the great white hope or the great hope of anything where we show up when it's convenient for us and then we may not come back or we want to be out of here before dark or whatever the stupid thing is we're going to say. We show up rain. We've, we've done them in the rain, the snow, whatever it is, man. And long as there's not ice and somebody's going to fall and get hurt, we're going to do it. People are hungry when it rains. We're going to, what, so people ask me, what are you going to do when it gets rains? I said, we're going to get wet because we are, we're outside. We're going to get wet. <clears throat> we're not going to melt. We're going to get wet. But I believe that consistency gives us so much credibility in our communities and for our businesses and for our churches and for our kids and our soccer teams. We're not just bringing the soccer teams and the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts because it's cute. I'm, I want them to come so they're raised with this notion that I can impact my community. I can, I can do something where I'm going to be a, a difference maker in someone else's life. That's why we bring our kids. That's why we bring our employees, that it's more than, hey, the profit's great. You're getting a paycheck. But we are an impact on our community. We're changing the neighborhood we live in. We're changing the city we live in. And that's what I encourage them is when we come, I'm not asking you for a one-year commitment. I'm asking you for like a five-year commitment to say, you earnestly want to build something and it's not going to happen overnight and you're not going to be famous and you're not going to be anything. It's just, nobody's going to really know what you're even doing. You know what I mean? Now, someday they will, and that's okay, but that's not why we do this. We're doing this to meet the needs of our community. And I feel like if we can do that around the country, then we will see some serious change in our nation, not because of what a political party did or didn't do, because to me, it's out of there. It's not about them. It's about us and how do we, we make the change happen. You know, you can't, you can't ask for the government not to do something if you're not willing to fill that vacuum. First thing you learn in leadership, right? You tell people, don't come to me with a problem if you do not have a solution, right? Isn't that it? So we can't ask, we can't say the government shouldn't do this, but then not have a solution for it. To me, what you say when you say that is you're you understand when you say that you're saying I'm willing to bear the responsibility for filling that void. 
So that that's what I believe. And so that that's what I want people when we come to them, understand the, what, what I'm asking them of is to say, you know, hey, I don't want food stamps. That's cool. Well, if you don't, that means you got to go rescue food from grocery stores. You got to get it to the people in need. So it's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's not going to be convenient ever. It's going to be hot, cold, wet, rainy. It's, you know, not everybody's going to be nice to you. Not, you know what I mean? It, most people are, but not all the time. So that, that's the thing, that, that consistency, that credibility, that we earn the right to be able to engage in someone's life on a deeper level. And then, you know, the cool thing is then we get to bring other resources. We can bring medical and we can bring financial counseling and aid to a food distribution. And we can, now we get to expose this community that we're getting to know. We get to expose them to things that we take for granted. And then we start, then we give them a real opportunity to get a leg up and an opportunity to get out of the cycle they're in. Well, this is one of those, you and I could go on for hours, but, um, we're going to switch over into a lightning round. So these are short questions, short right. answers, just a fun yep. chance to get to know you better. So what's something you like to do to relax? Wow. Um, hike. Um, or my wife's gotten into fly fishing. We've got to fly fish in Alaska and she just thinks that's the coolest thing ever. So we're going to start doing some, some fly fishing, but we like to go hike and go to the beach. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. So are you a wake up early or stay up late or both? in terms of productivity and what you like to do? I'm more of a wake up early guy. Um, at night, I'm pretty much done. You know, <laughs> I, I, I spend, low, drain the battery and then recharge it. Yeah, I, I run I run hard and then, yeah, just drain it and then recharge. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's me. What, uh, what sort of uh, TV shows or movies do you like to watch? Wow, movies... Um, Favorites would be Godfather, um, Gladiator, love the Marvel movies. So um, my wife's a little more on the other side of chick flicky. So I, I try to succumb to that every now and then, you know, but uh, TV is, I mean, not many TV shows. I just don't think TV's that great anymore. I'd rather do movies, you know. <laughs> so um, what's a recent book you've read? Ooh, man, I'm, I'm getting ready to read one traction. I haven't read that. I haven't finished it yet. Um, I read my Bible every day. That's a big deal to me. And, and that's another story. But uh, I didn't always do that, even though I pastored. But now I do that to feed me. So it's my it's one of my favorite books. But I just read one on um, I read a really cool book recently called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. That was a game changer. And I've given it I was given to me and I've given it to a lot of people. So I encourage anyone if you want to read a really book, don't read it and you won't like me when you read it, but don't remember, I just asked you to read it. You read it. So it's your responsibility, but it will, it will help you um, prioritize part of your life. And then I read another one on soul keeping by John Orberg. So I guess some, somebody's trying to tell me something. Hey, well, this is where I pick up a lot of good tips on books too. So that's, that's good. I like that. Where's a favorite vacation spot. Our go-to spot has been in the, uh, down in, down in um, Alabama, Florida, in that area, Orange Beach, Destin, Gulf Shores, that area. I've been going there since for 20, 27 years now, 20, yeah, 27 years now. That's kind of our go-to. We like Mexico a lot too, Cancun. We're starting to go there more, but it's six and a half hour drive. So we can get to the, that beach a little bit easier that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. What's a, uh, either a, kind of a fun routine, something special that you do with your wife? Um, date days. We used to do date days. We don't get as much days now, but we take at least a half a day every week just to be us. And so um, I encourage all married couples. I know you have kids, but learn to go on dates. Um, you know, our kids are grown and gone now, but you'd be surprised how fast they grow. And it's important to sew into each other in those early years. So if I was going to recommend anything, one thing that Elaine and I love is our date days. So those are off limits in my calendar. I have a meeting. I know that sounds crass, but for all you business people, women or men, put it in your calendar. I have a meeting that cannot be moved. Yeah. yeah. I had to do that. I'll just be honest. That's how I had to do it. I had to make it a meeting. When, you, when your meetings become more important than your time with your spouse, so you need to make that, if you need to go ahead and make that, and I did, I'm just being honest. I had to make that a meeting, my time with my spouse, and we don't violate that. 
yeah. without permission. That never gets violated without one of the other's permission. And if they say no, then that meeting doesn't get moved. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hey, well, but I, I think, you know, so many of us can relate to that. Put it in, lock it in, and, uh, and that way it's a priority. What um, is a favorite restaurant or go-to spot for anyone who wants to visit the Franklin or Nashville area? What's, what's a favorite spot there? And then what's a favorite spot in the St. Louis area where you grew up? Okay. Um, a couple here, Puckett's, Andy Marshall's a friend and, and just real cool meat and three, as we call it. I didn't know what a meat and three was, but it's, you know, just down home food. Wild Ginger's another great restaurant in Franklin that I love. $17.99. If you're in downtown Franklin, go to $17.99 at the new hotel. Just go to the hotel there. It's amazing. It's just super cool outside courtyard. It's really cool. So those would be three off the top of my head. And you got to try Nashville hot chicken somewhere, Hattie B's or somewhere. You got, if you come to Nashville, you got to at least try it, right? That's exactly right. See, I'm getting my own like list of things to do. All right. For and what if about you're St. in St. Louis, Louis area. St. Louis, you've got to go to what they call the Hill, um, which is Italian food, toasted ravioli. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The Hill is, yeah, that's the place to be, man. It's, it's just really cool. South St. Louis, not too far from downtown. Um, and so, and go, go see a Cardinal baseball game or a St. Louis blues hockey game. So it'll, you'll, it, it's a lot of fun. All right. What is a favorite quote or saying, and you don't have to obviously get it exactly right verbatim, but uh, what's a favorite quote or saying that inspires you? Wow. Boy, that's a really good one. Um, do you see a man who excels in his work? He'll not stand before obscure men. He'll stand before Kings and rulers. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, and then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It kind of takes the onus off of you. And the other one was Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. but it's, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm skilled in my work. I may not be the most educated person on earth, but I'm skilled in what I do. And I feel like if you stay humble and honor that, um, you'll be all right. Last question as we wrap up before we get to contact information and staying in touch, but you're creating your legacy every single day. You have a long, long way to still go and uh, many more days ahead, but many years from now, what do you hope people say about you and the difference you were able to make here on this earth? If you saw him privately, the way you see him publicly, that's who he was. And he gave everything he had and he loved well. That'd probably be it. Yeah. I love it. Well, Chris, wrap up with contact information. Where do we go to learn more about One Generation Away and to follow your efforts personally? Yeah, so onegenaway.com, O-N-E-G-E-N-A-W-A-Y.com. Um, go there. You can follow us on One Gen. Um, you can email me, chris at onegenaway.com and uh, reach out to me anytime. I, I'm, I, I'm, I try to be available for everybody, man, if I can. If somebody just says, hey, I want to start a nonprofit, call me. I'll do anything I can to help. I, I, I really, you know, it's just as simple as that email hit us up on, you know, you can email me through the website too, either way you want, but I'm, I'm glad to help any way I can. And that's why indeed you are a change maker. So Chris, thank you for all you do, you and your team and all your volunteers, the difference you make. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate all you're doing, man. You are really impacting the, our, our country and, and, our, and probably around the world, I'm sure, you know, with this podcast. So thank you for being obedient to what you were called to do, man. You do a great job. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at citycurrent. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now, think big, start small, and act now. Be a changemaker.